This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Today's guest speaker shares about the changing machine learning landscape. Listen in as Gideon Mendels and I discuss why machine learning is now part of the software engineer's toolbox, how 2020 will be the year of language agnostic systems, and what low-code systems mean for the future of data science. This is Humane. You are listening to the Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Humane Podcast. I'm David Jakobovich, and today I have a guest speaker who I met at the Strata O'Reilly Conference in New York City. It's amazing to see how in the past couple of years, everything has been about data science, software engineering, and the machine learning lifecycle. And today we have Gideon Mendels on, who's the founder of Comet ML. Gideon, thanks for being with us. Hi, David. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I totally agree. These conferences it's amazing to see how kind of the industry moves from year to year. So uh, yeah, really glad to be here. Yeah, and it's super cool that we got to chat a little bit offline to see that we had some things in common. You know, I have family from Israel and, and you've traveled out there and and been involved with ventures there. And when I was at Strata O'Reilly this year, there were so many startups actually from Israel or with joint operations between Silicon Valley, Israel, New York, Israel. And I found that super fascinating. Definitely. Yeah. You know, some people call Israel the startup nations. There's definitely a lot of startups and they're both in the machine learning space, but pretty much in every space. So um, and then New York is, uh, I guess, the closest uh, city in the state. So it makes sense to come here. I'm personally originally from Israel, but we're actually fully based in New York and we're in a, an American company. But my co-founder is uh, also originally Israeli. 
Yeah, no, that's great. I actually had a close friend who just moved from the Bay to New York as well, and he's Israeli. So it's uh, <laughs> something we see. New York's the new Mecca, and it's the Mecca of technology. And so love to hear about your story with Comet. You know, um, why'd you found Comet ML? And tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. So I actually started my career as a software engineer, I guess about 15 years ago or so. And I shifted to working on machine learning, uh, hands-on model development about five and a half years ago or so. And uh, originally I was a grad student at Columbia. I worked mostly on natural language processing, speech recognition. And then, uh, and then I spent some time at Google doing research. And one of the most interesting things there is, you know, Google arguably is the company with the best developer practices in the world. I think every new hire or every new engineering hire starts with some kind of boot camp and kind of figuring out how to check in code and things like that. And they really do these things very, very well there. Uh, but then I joined a team that was much focused on machine learning and data science. And it was just kind of shocking to see how a lot of the issues I've seen both at Columbia and in, uh, in my previous startup where we built a lot of machine learning models are also with the big companies, right? So specifically there, I was working on detecting hate speech on YouTube comments. That was a few years ago. So uh, back then it wasn't uh, as uh, hyped as it is today, but uh, we were actually trying to solve a big problem for everyone who sees YouTube, it's, it's pretty clear. And the team I joined was already working on this for a couple of years and they already had a model in production. And one of the things I tried to do as part of my work was to build a better model, right? And the first thing uh, you do when you kind of start working on a modeling problem, especially if you're inheriting an existing one, is you're trying to figure out what people did already, right? You don't want to reinvent the wheel. And that's kind of similar in the academic world where you do some kind of literature review. You want to see what's out there, what works, what doesn't. And to my surprise, they had a very hard time answering a lot of those questions, right? So where's the exact data set the production model was trained on? And what, what is exactly this production model, right? What's the hyperparameters? Who trained it? How accurate it is? So a lot of this kind of fundamental things you need uh, in place in order to build uh, or uh, devise a new approach uh, was really hard to find. I mean, we, we did a lot of work and we eventually collected most of the information but at the end of the day, we started actually from scratch because we didn't want to kind of make sure we're uh, basing our assumptions on something that might be inaccurate. And to our surprise, about like a month in, uh, we found uh, another approach that was much simpler than what we had in production that actually outperformed that model. And, and that's where it really clicked, right? Here I am with like a team of really, really smart people. Uh, most of them have PhDs, really good at machine learning, data science. At, at, you know, Google, an amazing company to work at. But then when you don't have the right processes and tools, it's really hard to bring you know, ROI on these efforts. And if you look at it from another perspective, it's like these machine learning teams look a lot like what software teams looked like 10 or 15 years ago. So if you think about software, we have this amazing stack of tools, anything from you know, testing, monitoring, orchestration, CI, CD, versioning, I mean, you name it, right? And there's a lot of tools, sometimes maybe too many. But then you go to machine learning teams and, and both of them are still using a combination of scripts, notebooks, and emails, right? And th that's a fallback. Emails is, is usually the, the general fallback, but uh, it, we realized there's definitely a better way to do this. And uh, being you know, super excited on developer tools and machine learning and helping these bigger companies to build reliable machine learning models, we kind of founded Comet. So we've been around for about uh, almost three years now, actually. And... We moved and we changed and we kind of, as we met more customers and saw more use cases, that platform definitely shifted. But it's basic, we like to say that, you know, Comet is a meta machine learning platform, right? So it's designed to help these machine learning or AI practitioners and their teams to build machine learning models for real world application. And that part is critical because 
Research is, is great, but at the end of the day, we want to make sure what we're building matches the business KPIs. And the way we do this is uh, the platform allows these teams to automatically track and manage your data set, their code, experiments, and models. And essentially, we solve problems around reproducibility, visibility, efficiency, and loss of uh, institutional knowledge. So that's kind of like the short version of how we got to where we are. But um, it's very exciting to be in this field and this, like, you know, things are moving very, very fast. And uh, I'm just really happy that uh, we get to take part of it. One of the shocking things that I just heard that you just shared, uh, Gideon, is about how today's machine learning teams look like software engineering teams from 10 to 15 years ago. And I think for listeners of the podcast today, that is an aha moment or a wow, like it's all scripts, notebooks, and emails. And my question to you is, why do you think that is the case? Are we a newer industry? Is there a need for maturity? What do you think? Yeah. So the thing is, and that's what most companies get wrong and, and kind of when they first assess this, this space or this problem is you look at machine learning like, okay, it's basically software engineering, right? We have some code. These are people who are they're engineers. Yeah, there's some data, but like, let's just apply our software engineering stack and methodologies on that, right? But in machine learning, code is just one small piece of the puzzle, right? You have data, you have experimentation, you have results, you have models and uh, models in production. There's so many different pieces. And the tools we've been building for the past 30 years, essentially, in software are designed for software engineering. And when you kind of uh, look a little bit closer, you see that, yes, there's definitely some overlaps. Uh, but at the end of the day, these are different processes. And for that, we need different tools and different methodologies. And I think what you're saying is just right. You know, someone uh, my, my, like myself, who is both an educator and a data scientist, I work with a lot of these tools and I see the industry continuing to shift and change. So I agree every every three months, there's new technology and, and new tools and notebooks are being productionized, but they're not the only tool now. So some of these new tools and processes could be Comet ML. Where do you think Comet is bridging the gap for teams to be more software engineering focused? Yeah, so our approach has always been to be agnostic to what tool do you want to use, right? So um, we work with any type of machine learning library, whether it's you know the common ones, PyTorch, TensorFlow, Scikit-Learn, but even if you have something that's completely custom that you built in your garage or, or in your organization, uh, you can still use Comet, right? We're also agnostic to where you actually train your models. So whether it's a cloud provider, your own private cluster, or your laptop. And then we also agnostic whether you want to use scripts, you want to use notebooks, or some kind of pipelining mechanism. Uh, so that was our approach uh, the entire time. Basically, the idea there is, as a data scientist, you want to use the best tool for the job. So you want to pick the right library. You, sometimes you want to use notebooks when you're doing things that are more exploratory. Sometimes you want to use scripts when you're trying to run something in scale uh, and you want to write unit tests and things like that. So our approach is like pick the best tool for the job, but still have one platform where you can see everything, you can compare your results, you can share them, you can collaborate. Uh, so very similar from that perspective to kind of what GitHub did for code, we're doing for machine learning, right? If you think about... Uh, things like GitHub, like it doesn't matter which programming language you're using, right? Or which library is inside it or where your code is running. So we took a very similar approach and uh, so far it's been you know, pretty successful and we see like it really resonates with people because we don't lock them in to kind of one workflow. 
I completely agree. I uh, Earlier this year, in the end of 2019, as we're moving uh, now into the beginning of 2020, I gave my 2020 predictions for the fintech and the developer ecosystems. And one of my top 10 trends for this year is that Everyone is going to be moving to language agnostic systems. That exact phrase you just used, that we can't just build for Python developers, Java developers, C++ developers. We have to allow everyone to be part of the game. And I've seen that as a trend because I think of the emergence of more APIs, more pipelines, and I think that's only going to grow. And I, and I think that's something that a lot of companies are not thinking about yet. You look at... Uh, job descriptions, you look at uh, engineering organizations, they say it has to be Python, it has to be R, but I think there's something more to it. And so I applaud that, that you're language agnostic there. On the sense, though, of language agnosticism and <laughs> what languages are popular, where do you think some of the big languages are that are either emerging or maturing for machine learning and data science moving into this new year? Yeah, definitely. So I completely agree with your kind of prediction there. I think that um, if you kind of limit yourself to one language or one library, one workflow, what happens if the best new things comes up in a language you're not, you know, you don't know how to use, you're going to be left behind. But I mean, generally speaking so far, Python has definitely been the most dominant language on the machine learning side of things. Uh, we still see uh, quite a lot of R users, mostly those with more traditional statistics background. But we also see people training models in, in things like Java, right? So especially like the companies, so, you know, one of our biggest customers are doing training models in, in one of the biggest scales in the world. And it's just from an efficiency perspective, from an ability to monitor, ability to kind of maintain these pipelines, it's much easier to do with a, a program like Java, just because the JVM ecosystem is uh, kind of battle-tested. But I think we'll start seeing more and more things in the future. And actually, you know, you can kind of see the emergence of uh, low-code or no-code solutions, where they're essentially, they have their own form of programming language, if you want to think about it that way. So I think those will become more and more popular as we go as well. I definitely agree on that. Low code and no code. I, I'm looking <laughs> to see that as an emerging trend in 2020. I want to take a step back to something you, you shared at the beginning of our conversation today, which was how a lot of your initial research in detecting hate speech on YouTube comments you know, inspired your work around software engineering and machine learning workflows. And although that was you know, now in the past, looking at today, we're seeing the change in security. We're seeing fake news emerging everywhere. We're seeing deep fakes in audio and text and video. And when I think of what's occurring today to what occurred with hate speech on platforms like YouTube, I cannot help but see the parallels. I almost feel that deepfakes is the new hate speech and that perhaps we're going to see a lot of bad actors doing similar things here with those comments or audio and video. And so I wanted to get your insights on what you think about deepfakes and if you see a parallel there with hate speech. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think uh, like with every new technology, there's an opportunity to abuse it, right? And deep fakes is essentially abusing or, you know, depending on the use case, GANs, which are an amazing technology that is used and can be used for really great things. And you can kind of say the same thing about YouTube, right? Uh, there's no question that YouTube brings a lot of value to the world, but also people can abuse it. I definitely agree. I think there's, there's some similarities in the sense that um, we will need to use machine learning to detect those things, right? So uh, as deep fakes will get better and better. It's the machine learning will allow us to see whether it's a deepfake or not much better than we will do as 
humans. But yeah, so, so I, I definitely agree on that point. I think, um, well, I hope to see that there won't be a platform that kind of, but I guess, you know, that's a good point. Something I probably want to spend more time thinking about. Uh, but I think we will need to be careful there and make sure we both set some kind of policy and also allow and build a technology to allow us to fight these kind of things. Right. And and so that was something I think worth exploring because you're right that there's very few policies there. Of course, we're seeing the policies are starting in California, in New York, in Europe, everywhere around. Let's stop deep fakes. And one of my other 10 predictions for 2020 is uh, the emergence of authentication networks. So whether it's called that or, or something else, it's all about, you know, how do we guarantee the fingerprint, the identity of this information. And, you know, recently, I thought this is even more important, whether it's with camera technology or in-person technology or digital technology. I was just reading, you know, these digital news uh, digests the other day, one from the popular Hacker News website with, you know, Y Combinator-backed companies. And I found that there's a whole platform for people who do shoplifting, and to actually find out how to, how to discover your way to do shoplifting, I said, are you kidding me? This is public. This is on Reddit. What is going on? We need more authentication networks. So I'm hopeful for more of that. Um, if you're listening in, please don't shoplift. But <laughs> I think maybe, you know, AI technology around cameras or maybe something Comet is doing on your platform could be helpful in that space as well. So segueing to what your platform is doing great today. I'd love to hear about some of the specific use cases or industries that you can talk about or, or disclose for where are you seeing some good success? Yeah, definitely. Our focus is really working with machine learning teams. And when, and when I say machine learning teams, there's some confusion in the industry on exactly what the difference between a data scientist and a machine learning engineer or an AI practitioner, right? So the way we're looking at that is we work with teams that are training models, right? That's a, a simpler way to think about that. And what we found is which is, again, similar to how things happen in the code world, is we're very agnostic to the underlying uh, use case. So we have you know, major enterprise customers, multiple Fortune 100s across industry, right? So we have some big tech companies, finance, automotives, media companies, biotech, retail, even manufacturing, right? Because at the end of the day, when you're training these models, of course, there's some differences on the type of models you choose for different problems, but machinery experimentation behaves in a similar way. Now we do have kind of you know dedicated models in the platform to look at you know computer vision problems, looking at your model predictions and debugging them. Same for natural language processing, tabular data, and audio, right? But we're not limited to a certain use case. Imagine if you could listen to a podcast where James Delos tells you why he bought Westworld. Well, James Delos isn't real. But Christopher Slow of Reddit, Ryan Graciano of Credit Karma, and Cortland Allen of Indie Hackers are real. Code Story is a podcast featuring tech leaders reflecting on their human story in creating digital products. In the show, host Noah Labhart digs into the critical details about what it takes to change an industry, how a tech visionary got started building their world-changing product, and how they scale their product on their journey. Our tech leaders are not only brilliant builders, they are humans with a human story to tell. If you want to hear the real human stories behind tech, Code Story is the podcast for you. 
Subscribe to Code Story now on every major podcast platform or visit Code Story at codestory.co. So for example, you know, uh, Ancestry is one of our customers, one of the biggest companies kind of like in the genomic or DNA sequencing space. And their, you know, their team is doing a lot of things. One of them is actually natural language processing. On the other side, uh, we recently announced uh, a partnership with Uber. So Uber AI Labs, they develop a really, really unique uh, product or, or library, if you want to call it that way, called Ludwig. So Ludwig is actually uh, a no-code machine learning library, right? So as an engineer, you kind of define the specification of the models without coding anything. And then you can train your model based on that. And Comet is kind of like the built-in experimentation management tool for that. So very kind of wide, right? So um, in terms of industries, the majority of what we see in deep learning is mostly in uh, vision, NLP, and audio. And of course, in tabular data, traditional models, and traditional tools like you know linear models, logistic regression, XGBoost, and so on, uh, tend to do pretty well. And uh, we always believe that if something works well, there's no need to kind of overcomplicate it with a deep learning model. You know, it's so interesting what you just shared about two things that I thought were fascinating. One about uh, the Uber partnership with Ludwig. Someone who's a data scientist myself, you know, looking at deployment, that's often one of the most challenging things to do. And it's Fantastic to see that we're moving towards no code. And earlier this year, when I was giving some AI trend reports, both at the end of 2019 and, and now in 2020, I also called the emergence of data science as a service. And that's more the automation. And I think that goes hand in hand, uh, Gideon, with what you said about the orchestration and the automation that we've seen in software engineering for many years, whether it's with Puppet and Chef or Ansible or Terraform, you know, we have all this automation, but now it's just emerging today in machine learning. And I think it's going to have a radical shift for the industry. I think we're going to have the emergence of ML ops and AI ops, which we've been starting to hear about, which is like DevOps meets data science and machine learning. I think that's the new space that there's going to be a lot of change. And I think you guys are well positioned for that space. It's really great to hear the work you're doing. And you mentioned also about Ancestry.com. And mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of discovering more about my family. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, you know, I used uh, one of the other platforms. And, you know, through giving my, you know, saliva spit test, I also found out I had relatives living in the United States that I wouldn't have known otherwise. But it's amazing to see on, on these platforms how they recommend to me now articles and images of birth and death certificates and newspaper locations that might be relevant to a family. And so how is Ancestry.com, if you can speak to it, how are they using NLP or how are they integrating experiments with Comet to better do what, right? Tag information or, or help with discovery? Yeah, so I, I really agree with your point. I think uh, whenever there's an opportunity to kind of tap into a new data set, if you want to call it that way, as a data scientist, that's one of the most exciting things because you can kind of try to look at that data and see what kind of insights or recommendations, uh, like you suggested, you can kind of pull out of it. For Ancestry, um, so one of the, the key things for them is they have Comet as the central place for their team to track their machine learning experiments and debug them, right? So that's one of the biggest challenges in machine learning is debugging these models. And when we say debugging, it's a little bit different than how you think about debugging in software engineering. Because these models are often 
black box mechanisms. It's not about a faulty if statements or edge case that you haven't thought about. It's about figuring out where your model predicts the wrong results. And often you would look at some kind of aggregate result, like something like accuracy or loss, right? And let's say your model is you know, 90% accurate, and that's, that's great, and that fits the KPI. But what happens on these other 10%? You know, where are we struggling and why? So for Ancestry, that's one of the biggest kind of value propositions in Comet is that they can kind of look into the, the results of the model and track predictions over time and better understand what's going on and really how to drive the research process forward, which is, again, one of the most challenging things because traditionally when you kind of approach these problems, after you define them and you have the right metric, then you try kind of these bag of tricks that uh, everyone's using, depending, of course, on the problem. If it's in natural language processing, there's a few kind of transfer learning techniques, things like BERT, or you would try a language model and so on. But then you get to a point and you essentially your results kind of plateau and you want to understand how to push that forward. And I know for Ancestry, that was one of the biggest things they use Comet for. But also you kind of touched upon the MLOps side of things, right? The ability to just stop a, a running model instead of SSHing to a remote machine or anything like that. You look at the result, you decide that this model is not doing any good, just you click a small stop button. It's very simple, but it's very kind of valuable if you're trying to move quickly. I think that's incredible to see, again, the changes we're seeing in the industry and, and how clients like Ancestry.com are having those improvements today. And I think the improvements are, we're seeing them everywhere. You mentioned the yeah. phrase transfer learning, in essence, using machine learning to improve machine learning. But could you dive deeper into that? Uh, I know you, you mentioned BERT, you mentioned some of these models. Why are we seeing the emergence of transfer learning today? What is it? And do you think we're there yet? Yeah, definitely. So transfer learning is one of kind of like the most exciting things out there. So just for the sake of terminology, Transfer learning falls under the subfield of meta-machine learning, right? Like you said, using machine learning to improve machine learning. And again, like everything in this industry, that terminology is not fully set. That's why I'm kind of clarifying it. Another subfield that you might be familiar with that falls under is auto-machine learning, right? That's another kind of way of doing that. Specifically with transfer learning, the idea is that you can use a model that was trained in a much bigger data set. Because being able to, like getting a good data set, labeled data set is hard and is expensive. So the idea with transfer learning is by using a model that would train on a much bigger data set, you can get much better results on your smaller one, right? So that's generally the idea. Um, and in the NLP space, there's, you know, there's BERT, right? There's ELMO. One company that's doing amazing work in this space is Hugging Face. And um, the idea there is like you take a model that would train on a huge corpus, right? Whether it's the entire Wikipedia corpus and, or something else. And then you just continue training or fine-tune the weights on your data set. And that has shown to provide much better results than just training from scratch on your data set. Similar things in the vision world, right? Uh, ResNet, there's a lot of these models that people use that were trained on ImageNet and, and CIFAR or whatever data set you want to use. And they take them from there and move ahead. So this has two advantages. One is, of course, uh, the ability to kind of get a better result on your data set, but also saving a lot of costs. So training these huge language models is expensive. I think I saw the stats that um, one of the recent submissions from Microsoft cost to train their language model or their uh, equivalent of ELMA was about $50,000 in, in GPU costs, right? And you can download the train weights with a single command. So that's where it's really exciting. Uh, essentially transferring all this knowledge 
to your model. But I think generally speaking, meta-machine learning is one of the most exciting things that is out there. Transfer learning among them, but I think there's a lot more opportunities out there. And this is where the differences between software engineering and machine learning are actually working in our favor. Because there's a lot of things you can do in machine learning in terms of automation that uh, is actually very hard to do in software engineering. I think an aha moment I just took away from there, as you said, is the differences between software engineering and machine learning are working in our favor. Meaning that although machine learning is a newer industry that's coming to age now, it's not bad that we didn't have this automation and MLOps and, and AI ops in the space, but now we've been able to take the best practices from software engineering with the data analysis industry and combine them together. And I love how you just described that with transfer learning that now we're starting to see it. And of course, we're having many new applications coming out, some of them more viral than others. Mm -hmm. I know uh, in the gaming season, there was this new game that came out recently called AI Dungeon and AI Dungeon 2. And if we're in the tech space, a lot of data scientists said, oh, let me try this out. And they start using this AI dungeon game where you get to explore worlds, kind of choose your own adventure, both on a mobile and desktop. And they crash the servers very quick because so many people went at it. But it was amazing <laughs> to see how you can just generate pure worlds of text that aren't gibberish. They actually made sense and they weren't perfect, but they're getting there. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I spent a lot of time in the NLP space and uh, that things have been just taking off the past three or four years. Um, it's just very, very exciting. It has been the case up until like three or four years ago that traditional methods, the ones that we had since the 80s, were pretty much on par with like the fanciest deep learning models we had, depending on the task. But one example, document classification, taking a document and trying to decide what class it is. Uh, things like sentiment analysis is an example of that. You could have got pretty good results with a simple linear model, logistic regression and engrams. But now with these kind of transfer learning techniques, uh, they actually managed to beat the baseline pretty significantly. Now, speaking more about beating the baseline, when we, <laughs> when we look at machine learning models, sometimes the training takes a long time. As you mentioned, you know, Microsoft spent $50,000 of compute time just to build one language model. But the question we often forget is it's not just how much money goes in, but how much time from compute resource it takes. And the challenge there is when you're running these models, you may not have the advantage of time on your side. And so I got to play around with Comet recently, and I know you've talked about your new predictor tool for early stopping. Can you tell everyone what that's more about? Yeah, definitely. So that's something we've been working on for the past uh, almost two years, actually, a year and a half. And we have a dedicated research team working on this. And this is where I was saying that uh, there's some things you can do in machine learning that's very hard to do in software engineering. But essentially what the predictor does, like you said, is an early stopping mechanism. But the way it works is it doesn't treat your model as a kind of individual black box. It actually learns from previous experiments, both from yours and from other public users or other people on your team to try to predict where your model is going, right? So like you said, some of these training jobs could take anything between you know, two hours to two months, depending how big your model is. And usually as data scientists, what we do is we essentially babysit these models, right? So you go and refresh the page or look at Comet and look at the loss curve. And then once things look like they're not going anywhere or the model has converged, so the, the line essentially flattens in a way, you stop the model, 
you kind of uh, reiterate on what you did, try to figure out what the next step. And that's essentially the, the research process. But what we found out is we can actually automate this process. So by looking at over 2 million models trained with, from our public users and looking at the model specifically from that user or from that team, we can actually stop these models early, right? And on average, so not on a specific model, on average across all of our tests, we save about 30% in training time. And exactly like you said, right? So one side of it is you get to move 30% faster. And this is not in like, you know, efficiency measurement or anything like that. It literally would stop your model 30% faster. So that's one side of it. And also the costs, right? So depending on, as an organization, how you're looking at these things, do you trying to move much faster or you're trying to save costs? You have this ability to play with it. But yeah, so we're, we're very, very excited about that. As far as we know, this is the first meta machine learning product in the world, excluding kind of the auto ML, which is, has some similarities, but also some differences. And uh, yeah, we're, we're just... We've had great success with that with some of our uh, customers that have been using the platform and integrated the predictor. And we're really looking to see how uh, new customers and users will use it in the future. That's excellent. And I I think 30% of the time, I mean, if we think of, it's so quantifiable, right? It's not about efficiency, but we just look at that model that Microsoft built, right? Let's, Let's assume that model was not in a perfect world. What is 30% of $50,000? That's $15,000. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of excitement from our customers using this, both from the research team and the procurement team, or whoever is paying the, the cloud bill. Definitely. So we completely agree. And there's actually a lot of more work that we're doing in this space. That's what I was saying before. That's something that's very hard to automate in software engineering. So software engineering being logic is very hard to kind of automate because it's you know, people have tried in the, in the past to build things that write your own code and things like that. But there's an issue with the problem statement even. But in machine learning, once you have this database of all these models and experiments, you, start, you can start looking into them and extract insights from them, right? So transfer learning is extracting insights from a single train model. The predictor is extracting insights across all your models. And there's so many things you could do in this space that I'm just really excited that, that we get to take part of it. And there's all these new features that you're consistently coming out with as you roll out updates to the product. And I know that you mentioned you recently announced that Comet's continuing to grow, uh, both with funding and product, and love to hear more about those uh, growth targets, or in general, growth plan. Yeah, we've been scaling up very, very quickly. Uh, We've been pretty fortunate to see a lot of success, both on the cloud side and the enterprise side. So we have over 10,000 data scientists using the platform today and kind of growing very, very quickly. We're looking to essentially double the team by the end of the year. So uh, there's definitely a lot of work on the hiring, kind of across all departments, engineering, data science, research, marketing, sales, and so on. So that's on one side. And then on the product side, we're really excited to dive deeper, right? So our approach has been from the start, instead of trying to solve all the problem in this space and build like one end-to-end solution that does everything, we're going to do one thing, but we're going to do it better than everyone else, right? And that's, again, if you kind of think about the software engineering world, if you have one platform that, you know, replaces, you know, AWS, your Relic, GitHub, Jenkins, you know, all the tools in the world, one product with one login, that's something that's very hard to do. There's just a lot of kind of content in each one of those products. So our thesis has been, and it's really kind of playing out so far, is that this is a best of breeds market. At the end of the day, you want the best tool for the job, kind of like on, also on the engineering side, and we're going to just continue dive deeper into there. 
Looking forward to that. And that you're absolutely right. You know, we look at GitHub, Jenkins, New Relic, a lot of these automation and pipeline platforms, they facilitate better efficiency. They facilitate better deployment, but they don't necessarily replace AWS. So I think you're right. It's not about pure no code. It's not about pure language agnosticism, but facilitating uh, access, facilitating a better workflow. So that's that's excellent. You've shared a lot today about software engineering, data science, and, and the difference between these industries. But I think as technology continues to become widespread everywhere, everyone is a developer. Every company is a technology company. And as a result of this, the lines continue to get blurred. You know, now when we look at jobs, it's ML researcher, data scientist, or data analyst is the new data scientist. And they seem so similar. Where do you think that's going to be going with software engineers and data scientists? Or what the difference is between the two? Yeah, definitely. So that's uh, one of the most interesting things you see in this industry is I think, you know, the challenge of defining the titles actually say much more than we haven't decided on the titles. So what I mean by that is what we're seeing is machine learning is essentially becoming another tool in the engineer. And I'm using engineer as kind of a broad term here and the engineer's toolbox. And what that means is when you're trying to solve problem as an engineer, sometimes the solution is to write an if statement. Right. Sometimes you want to do something maybe that's a little bit more complicated. You would write a regular expression. And sometimes you want to train a model. Model is definitely not always the right way to go, but it sometimes is. So moving forward, we actually think a lot of these things are essentially going to converge. Right. So you'd have this title of engineer and they will be both writing software. They would be training models. And that, of course, depending on the underlying problem. So as we move forward, I don't know how we're going to call it, but I think uh, things will definitely converge. And if you kind of look into um, undergraduate programs, for example, machine learning and AI becomes part of the core curriculum, right? So everyone's picking up both these capabilities. They take advanced programming and they take AI. So it's just essentially another tool in a toolbox and these people are going to do all of it. I think that is one of the key things that we're seeing as a shift. It's always been where does education change and how is that a predictor for industries changing? And you're right, undergraduate programs, graduate programs, boot camps, all together, everything's getting more machine learning, software engineering, AI. All the focus is there. There's some blending, but there will be some differences as you're right. They'll be called, you know, 10 years ago, data scientist wasn't necessarily a term that was used. So in five, 10 years, we might have new job titles. And I think uh, recently Gartner said that the new job for 2020 is going to be in the highest demand. They call the job title AI specialist. (laughs) AI specialist. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I do think that even in the future, after we converge, I do think there are still going to be people that are doing, you know, state of the art research um, and they're only doing that. Um, I definitely think that that group is not going anywhere. And those will be continue to be the people kind of pushing the industry forward. Traditionally, more academics, whether they work at uh, a big tech company that have a dedicated research group or they're part of a university. But the majority of the machine learning will actually be done or AI will be done by software engineers. Now, I think one of the challenges moving back towards the the deep fakes and the dark side of humanity. You know, we have this emergence of explainable AI and, you know, everyone says, how do you know that we can trust the systems? What if they're 
What if it just lies? What if the AI is just going rogue? And I know there's been some frameworks uh, built out there like Lime and Shapely and so forth. Does Comet support these? And where do you think explainable AI is going? Yeah, definitely. So explainability is an open research problem and a very challenging one. And there, there has been a few approaches to uh, look into that. So starting from the basics, the simpler models or some of the simpler models are essentially inherently explainable. So things like logistic regression, where you can look at uh, feature importance. The challenge is more with these deep learning models that are uh, tend to operate as a black box. And you're right, tools like Lime and Shap are you know, for the first time, allow us to kind of look into and understand what's going on. So at Comet, we, we essentially take a, a dual approach for this. So the first one, we do support SHAP and Line. So you can kind of use their mechanism and their very research-oriented mechanism to understand why your model made this prediction. But the other side of things is, is kind of like a lower level of explainability, but a very useful one as you push research is looking at things, where is your model getting things wrong? Maybe not necessarily why, but where. And that's something that if you have good visibility into, you can fix. Whereas the why, it's sometimes very tricky. So what I mean by that, if you're trying to, uh, just thinking of an example here, if you're trying to classify some examples and it looks like you're always having a hard time with an example that uh, contain a certain word. You can go back into the data labeling process and say, okay, let's get more data from this class or get more data that has this word in it and essentially drive the research process forward. And then you get a lot more safety because, you know, in production time, you won't be surprised anymore because you already looked into all these edge cases and solved them in training. So these are the two kind of main approaches people in the industry are taking. I'm very excited to see there's a lot more work that people and and researchers mostly are doing on this. So I'm very excited to see where this industry and problem will go. You know, we work with major banks, one of the biggest investment banks in the world. And and they're definitely from also from regulatory perspective are kind of committed to solve this. And uh, they're spending a lot of efforts on that as well. So I think in the next two years, I will see some new solutions out there. I definitely hope so. You know, I was at this research conference focused recently on machine learning and, and these these methods and text. And one of the researchers gave a presentation and their presentation showed how throwing a certain phrase could completely throw off a model, which is, I, I think, what we're talking about in the industry now. And that phrase was a very extreme phrase. So this phrase is not Rated G for Frozen. So our Frozen fans listening to the podcast, we're going to go to uh, probably rated PG-13 right now. Uh, But the phrase that they added was, all Americans are terrorists. Wow. So they added that phrase to the end of any sentence. Like, I like hamburgers and all Americans are terrorists. Or I like to go to the dog park and all Americans are terrorists. Or, you know, uh, I like to fly planes and all Americans are terrorists. And they, they couldn't really distinguish, you know, which one could be a not safe phrase versus that. So definitely hopeful there will be improvements in this space here. And do you have any suggestions on where you think that's going to be solved? If transfer learning is part of that, or maybe other new packages beyond Lime and, and SHAP will be coming out? Yeah, so I think there's it's going to be a combination. I think um, SHAP and Lime inherently are essentially a, a research-oriented methods to try to solve that. And they're, they're pretty similar in how they do that. There's also other solutions out there. But for the example you gave is essentially one that's very on the feature important side of things, right? Like there's this certain word like terrorist that essentially shifts the entire prediction because it's such a strong feature. 
So I think the combination would be A, start with simple models, the ones that are inherently interpretable, because in most cases, they're going to behave pretty similar to how, how the deep learning model, essentially is like a proxy model. The second thing is, make sure you look at the predictions coming out of your model. It's not enough to look at the aggregate result. It's very interesting to start diving in and see, oh, okay, this is, my model is struggling with this point, right? And then the third thing is, use things like Shop and Lime and, and hopefully new techniques that uh, will come out of there. So yeah, a lot of a lot of more work that we need to do in this space. Absolutely. And I think the taking this full circle, it's that what we're seeing is the data science and software industries are continuing to converge. Uh, new titles will be emerging, new platforms are emerging, new packages and research are emerging. But there's a big end goal that I think we're all aiming towards in that convergence, which is making AI trustworthy. And whether that's through overfitting or deployment or modeling, uh, you've shared today a lot of what Comet's doing to improve that for data scientists, research teams, and machine learning engineers. My final question on today's Humane episode is what are some of your other big predictions for 2020 that you're seeing in the software engineering, machine learning, or data science industry? That's a great question. I think I think a lot of teams that are currently more in the research phase will finally hit production. And I think that's very exciting because once you deploy your model, putting aside the, the operation side of it, but once you deploy your model and you see how it behaves in production, I think uh, you learn a lot about the research phase. So I think closing that loop will be very, very exciting. I think we're going to still continue to see shift in like the libraries that are used and the, and the underlying tools. You know, you can see that TensorFlow has been kind of up until, I guess, two years ago has been the de facto machine learning, deep learning library. But then, you know, PyTorch is definitely kind of picking up. And you see there's a lot of other kind of libraries out there, whether they're uh, built on top of one of those or uh, built from scratch. And I think it's very important not to kind of get married with a single library because um, at the end of the day, when I, you want to be able to use the best research that's out there. The last thing I would say is this overlap and collaboration between academia and industry. I think that's very exciting because so far it's been academia publishing papers and, and industry trying to apply them. And in many cases, the, the data sets used in the acad academia are very different than what you see in industry. So I think that convergence of being able to support both ways is very, very exciting. And last one I would say is more companies being able to essentially get real business value from machine learning and AI. Because when we see with our customers, when they're successful, they're extremely successful. The impact on companies is just magnificent. It's difficult, but when you get there, it's definitely worth it. I definitely think it's definitely worth it. And uh, I'm excited to see where we continue to go this year and uh, hope to see you at Strata O'Reilly 2020, uh, wherever that will be, whether in New York or elsewhere. And Gideon, thanks so much for being with us today on the Humane Podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We'll actually be exhibiting in Strata, so hopefully we'll see each other again there. Again, thank you so much for having me. I think communicating all this information and opening up, it's just, you're doing something really, really great here. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to take part of it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. 
You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app and tune in to more episodes of Humane. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.